Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 368th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by The Flight Attendant, starring Kaylee Cuoco, whose performance Entertainment Weekly calls phenomenal. Watch the series The Hollywood Reporter hails as a, quote, bright, glossy, fast-moving mystery, close quote. The Flight Attendant, now streaming on HBO Max. And now down to business. My guest today is an actor, writer, director, and producer who has had one of the most interesting and unusual Hollywood careers of the past 30 years, reaching the highest of highs, hitting the lowest of lows, and somehow, time after time, finding his way back. He first crossed the radar of most people when Goodwill Hunting, a 1997 film that he co-wrote and co-starred in with his lifelong best friend Matt Damon, was awarded the Best Original Screenplay Oscar in 1998. In that moment, at age 25, he became and remains the youngest ever winner of a screenwriting Oscar. In the ensuing years, he became a Hollywood A-lister, starring in giant movies like 1998's Armageddon and 2001's Pearl Harbor, and being named People's Sexiest Man Alive in 2002, only to see it all washed away by a series of critically demolished films, especially 2004's Jersey Girl and 2005's Gigli and the tabloids' relentless coverage of his relationship with his co-star in those films, Jennifer Lopez. And yet, he clawed his way back to respectability with a humble character part in 2006's Hollywoodland and an impressive directorial debut with 2007's Gone Baby Gone, followed by 2010's The Town and 2012's Argo, the last of which was awarded the Best Picture Oscar, meaning an odds-defying return to the Oscars podium for its director, 15 years after he was last there. However, in the years since, his standing fell once again, thanks to his surprising decision to take on the role of Batman in several DC Universe films, which then underperformed, his first bomb as a director, 2016's Live by Night, and a battle with alcoholism that contributed to the end of his marriage to Jennifer Garner, forced him into rehab, and left many doubting if, this time, he would be able to professionally bounce back. And then, in March 2020, just before the pandemic shut down America, he returned to the big screen in Gavin O'Connor's The Way Back, a film in which he plays a man whose life has been decimated by alcoholism, but who is given a shot at redemption when the high school at which he was once a basketball star asks him to return as the coach of its struggling basketball team. 
The result is, as the Atlantic put it, quote, the rawest and most natural performance he has given in his career, close quote, and one that could lead to his first ever acting Oscar nomination. I'm talking, of course, about Ben Affleck. Over the course of our conversation, the 48-year-old and I discussed his difficult childhood and how a high school acting teacher wound up serving as something of a surrogate father for him, giving him the confidence to pursue his dreams of becoming a professional actor, how he and Damon wound up writing Goodwill Hunting and convincing Hollywood to make it with them in the main roles, thereby launching their careers, how he navigated newfound celebrity, the Benefer period, his personal struggles, and the many times when people have written him off, why he took on the part in The Way Back, which hits very close to home, and how he feels about it now, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. And, uh... On this one, we always just begin right at the beginning. I think most people know the answer to part one of this, but can you just share where you were born and raised and uh, what your folks did for a living? I was actually born in California because uh, my parents were, my mother was teaching at a, a kind of alternative school in Oakland at the time. I was born at Alta Bates Hospital in Oakland, August 15th, 1972, around 2.30 in the morning for all those who are really interested in my horoscope. Right, um, right. And then they moved back. They, they, li- they lived in Boston. They moved back to Boston a couple of years later. Um, I grew up there. My mother's a public school teacher. Uh, she taught public school, mostly fifth and sixth grade for about more than 30 years. She's a brilliant woman. She, went, she actually got into Radcliffe and graduated from Harvard. She was there when they merged. And she could done a lot of things, but she was really believed in education and wanted to do that. And so, um, and, and obviously she didn't believe in money because she married my father who was a janitor <laughs> and a bartender. And uh, I don't know, seemed determined, never mostly unemployed and an alcoholic. So uh, not, not a promising, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, not a gold digger, my mom. But, uh, right, right. and he, uh, he kicked around. He actually wanted to be and did, did try to, um, well, he didn't try. He did. He was a writer. He wrote. He, he worked at the Theater Company of Boston as a consistent director with a guy named David Wheeler, who did some really impressive theater directing uh, and, and did know uh, and come across quite a few actors who later became very successful, guys like Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. and 
uh, Robert Duvall and John Boyd and Albuchino and people like that who came to the theater company in Boston. Um, but he was not successful as a, uh, wasn't able to be, you know, sell his writing and, um, or get a job as a director. And also his drinking kind of contributed to his deterioration. He didn't quit drinking until I was 19 and I had left mm-hmm. and moved to California. So mostly during my former, and he was a sort of an old fashioned, you know, what they call low bottom drunk, you know, kind of wino mm-hmm. type living on the streets type guy. Mm-hmm. So he kind of fell apart, but his, his being a janitor, he was a janitor at Harvard, which was the, um, inspiration for Matt's character being a janitor. We switched it to MIT because it was such a, you know, math is an right, right. easy thing to dramatize and solving a theorem on a chalkboard and stuff seemed like something that happened at MIT rather than Harvard, but the whole sort of, not only the kind of town and gown aspect of, of the Goodwill hunting story, but the, the guy, I thought my father was a brilliant guy and a genius and underappreciated and, you know, you, you kind of tend to, um, luckily for me, I think often with my own children, you tend to sort of think the best and worship your dad and he's your hero. And even despite evidence to the contrary, you know, I was like, <laughs> I know he's a genius. It's in there somewhere. And in fact, because he had these relationships with that, he, he would talk about, I never met, met any of those guys, but like, you know, these guys who went on to fame and fortune, that was sort of the inspiration. I mean, I talk about this movie like you remember or saw it yesterday. It was 25 years ago or something. But in Good Will Hunting, Robin Williams' character and Stellan Skarsgård's character were meant to have been old friends. One went on to become quite famous and successful. The other was teaching at a community college. That was sort of like my idea of my dad. I knew these guys, who, you know, and then went separate ways. And Well, was your dad's acting work at all an influence for i mean you started really young i know your first kind of paid gig i think was seven yeah uh did that have anything to do with your dad or that was totally no, my dad actually wasn't an actor uh he he, he was a, dire- a writer and a director theater and did direct a kind of adaptation of early video adaptation of one of his plays they called the bottom line about when he was a car mechanic also he worked at a place called auditorium which was kind of a fusion of his auto mechanic and theater interest. Um, but they fixed old Toyotas. Um, and uh, no, that my parents did not want me to be an actor. It had nothing to do with it. In fact, they knew so many miserable, struggling actors who didn't make any money and they knew how hard it was that they really discouraged me. My father kind of fell out of my life once he was drinking, became really extreme around, around when he moved out of the house around 10 or 11. And when I was 10 or 11 and um, my mom was, you know, really believed in academics and studying and wanted me to, you know, be a history professor or something and wanted me to get good grades. And uh, it just so happened that her best friend and the woman that she went to college with was a casting director in Boston, brought me in just at random because she was looking for little kids for a PBS TV series that WGBH was producing. So they were casting out of Boston. That's the local PBS affiliate in Boston. I don't know if you ever watched Zoom, but oh, two, one, three, eight. That, that was my zip code. So I always <laughs> thought I was famous. My zip code. <laughs> she brought me in. I auditioned for this thing, Voyage of the Mimi. And, you know, as luck would have it, uh, randomly, uh, I got it. Not even knowing exactly what it was or what it meant. And then I really liked it. And it ran, it was sort of in some ways the best of both worlds because I got a lot of experience as an actor. 
I worked a lot. My mother also made sure I had a, had a normal life. I didn't go to LA. I didn't do sort of a lot of other stuff. I went to normal public school, but periodically I would go off and, and be an actor. And I found that I really loved it. Um, I'm not sure that the kids in sixth grade for whom the show, The Voyage of the Mimi, was mandatory science curriculum loved it <laughs> as much as I did. But, uh, well, so that, that was the first one, but... Uh, let me ask you about another early important kind of uh, thing, which I guess let me frame it this way. You, you've you had for a lot of years a production company called Pearl Street Films. Why do you, this is you and Matt Damon, why is it called Pearl Street Films? Matt and I grew up uh, two blocks apart and Pearl Street was the street that we would walk to to get to one another's house. You know, later someone was like, is that like some kind of porn reference? And I was like, porn? What are you talking about? <laughs> and they let us go pearl necklace or something. But no, you know, I don't know. It has a sort of an odd name. But no, Pearl Street is the street, is the, is the street in, uh, in Boston where we, or Cambridge actually, where uh, between, you know, Matt and I grew up uh, two blocks away. And I was just talking to him actually a few days ago, now that he's 50 and I'm 48, that uh, what a strange and amazing coincidence it was for i mean we just took for granted that we got along and worked well together and like to work together and both like to do this and in the intervening years it's occurred to me that it's a lot more rare and it was a lot more random and lucky to grow up and be best friends with a guy who you work with so well and get along with so well and he and i sort of complement one another as writers really well and as filmmakers and creators and it was just luck, you know. It's an amazing, amazing thing to have, you know, from two blocks away in the you know, middle of Massachusetts, these two guys that have such a great career, actually three, because uh, your brother, of course, uh, I mean, just amazing thing. But so just so people know, because you mentioned there's this two year roughly age difference. You guys meet, I guess, through your moms. You're already working. You have representation. He wants that. I, I believe you helped him. Uh, he sort of got it through oh, you. and you well, guys, let's not have any fun yeah <laughs> you got who into this fucking business right. that damn pushing a broom wasn't for me you can make that the headline story. right uh, no matt was um yeah matt moved, I, I lived in you know in the city and matt moved from newton uh into the city uh when i was 10 uh, eight he was 10 I had already started Voyage of the Mimi. I was doing a little bit of acting. I got a, a small kids agent in New York. Matt was really interested in acting. I'd done some, he would proudly tell me about his experience at the Wheelock Community Theater and tell me how I didn't understand real acting because it wasn't about your, your looks. It was the theater. It was about your soul and your integrity. I got a lot of lectures from Matt about that. Uh, although it's interesting because he hasn't done a play for 25 years. So... <laughs> But uh, yeah, and then he eventually I said, you know, we became friends and I said, well, why don't you just come down and to, you know, meet my agent and, uh, you know, my agent uh, signed him and upon introduction and I think he, I don't even remember if he auditioned or read a little scene or something, but uh, yeah, and then, he, and then he and I used to go down to, and it was a different area, you know, like our parents just let us go to New York from Boston by ourselves <laughs> when we were in high school right. to like audition for, you know, random stuff. And, uh, and that's how, uh, he got into it and he and I started working and it was fun. You know, we, I was always like, I, you know, we would usually go up for the same things, you know, I would want to get it, but if I didn't get it, I wanted Matt to get it. You know, we, right. we were never competitive and ugly or bad. We were always learned at a kind of a young age to be 
supportive and root for each other. And that really turned out to be an incredibly helpful thing in my life to have a friend who was going through, because th this business is very strange. The things that happen to you are strange. The things people do are strange. It's hard to be grounded. It's hard to balance uh, your humility with the kind of confidence that you need to perform and to, to take these big risks. And uh, having somebody to reflect on that experience with has been invaluable for me. I, I don't know how people do it. It must be a tremendous feeling of, of, of loneliness or something. Um, mm -hmm. Feeling mm -hmm. like you're, you're on your own, but with, with Matt and my brother and, and, you know, at a young age, you know, became friends with Joaquin and Vince Vaughn. And, uh, you know, I came out to LA, knew a bunch of guys, McConaughey, I mean, so on and so on. Like, so I had a group of friends who were sort of doing what I was doing, Cole Hauser, you know, um, and that was really helpful. But obviously Matt, um, you know, most of all, and uh, he's two blocks away now. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, and I think people should know that there were, you know, it's kind of amazing how it started. We all know, you know, big landmarks like uh, Goodwill Hunting and stuff. But years before that, you guys are both extras in Field of Dreams. You guys are both going out, I believe, for Mickey Mouse Club and Batman and Robin and stuff like that. Um, so there, there was work from an early age. But I think that I want to ask you about somebody who, I talked to Casey a lot about on this podcast and he really spoke glowingly of this person. And I, I think Matt does as well. Who was Jerry Specka? Jerry Specka is definitely the most important influence on me creatively, professionally, maybe sort of personal development wise as well. He was our high school theater teacher, but um, as sometimes happens with a really important person in young people's lives, he took on like an, he was an, sort of, you know, I, my father wasn't present, you know, he taught us how to be responsible, hardworking, ethical, moral adults. He took us to take acting, writing and directing really seriously. He taught us that, it, um, you know, he let us improvise the scenes and then direct them. And, you know, he, he, he did, he, he, he kind of introduced this notion that if you were an actor, you didn't have to just be an actor. It wasn't a, a, in a silo that it was all part of this larger process and gave us a sense of empowerment that we could write and direct and act. And, you know, he was somebody that we just worshiped and adored. And, and he was an incredibly dedicated, wonderful guy, an incredible acting teacher. A, a ton of people have come through his school and gone on to be successful and work uh, professionally, you know, um, to various degrees from Monique Larson, who sings musical theater, to Max Casella, who was in Live By Night, and is a great, to my friend Matt Mayer, who is a great actor and, and uh, obviously my brother and Matt and, 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 you know, uh, but not, not, you know, his success is not even in my mind measured so much in terms of like who was successful that learned from him, but everybody who took that class or the vast majority of us were, you know, made better for it. And he was somebody that I thought about a lot when I was doing the by night, because I thought, I mean, uh, the way back, because I thought, you know, if you have somebody as a young person, particularly at that kind of critical stage as a teenager uh, who really guides you and fosters your development, it's it, it can make a massive difference in your life. And probably the most single most important moment in my professional life was around graduation. I was finishing uh, school and Jerry asked to talk to me in his office and thought I was in trouble and I went in there and he said, Hey, I just want you to know, you know, uh, if you 
make the choice, I, you know, I think you can do this. I believe in you. I think you can be successful. And for what seemed like a long time, you know, seven years or something of a lot of rejection and struggle and getting turned down, a lot of humiliation, you know, those words kind of kept me going. The fact that this guy who I admired so profoundly believed in me was enough to keep me going. And um, I can't say enough about how important he was to me. Yeah. So one other thing that I guess sort of started before college and only because I guess it, it kind of is a thread that, again, will connect with the way back. I think this may have even been pre-Jerry Specker or at the same time as Jerry Specker. I think your mom sent you to a camp for at-risk teens, right? What was that about? I'll tell you what it was about. I made some money, you know, about $8,000 or something for which it was not uh, a, a high-paying gig. And uh, it was put into an account that was supposed to be for my college money. Uh, when I was a teenager, my father's alcoholism was, you know, quite severe. You know, he, he made some bad choices, as you do as an alcoholic, in which I've come in my later years to understand and appreciate and, and recognize for, for what they are. But it, it was a mistake. And he he was working as a janitor. He got drunk. He fell down. He smashed himself up. He got fired. He couldn't pay his rent. And he asked me for money. He asked me to basically pay his, pay his rent and his bills. Um, and I figured out how to crack into this trust fund not a trust fund because I didn't inherit it. It was money that was for college. It's college fund by talking a local <laughs> woman into, who was a notary into signing something for me and taking it to the bank. And anyway, got access to the money, spent the money mostly on, on giving it to my dad for rent, but also some of it on like, you know, like pizza and beer and video <laughs> games and dumb shit. That you do when you're... So it went through like the eight grand pretty fast. And when it ran out, I didn't want to tell my mom that uh, I said I didn't want to get my dad in trouble. And so she thought I was on drugs and sent me to a like a wayward youth summer experience on the Colorado River where you like, you know, spent a week living alone. It was horrible. Uh, I hated it. Um, but uh, I did it. I did it. It was like, a, you know, and I, it was me and a bunch of other, you know, troubled kids, which just means like, a lot of assholes for you on a river, you know, <laughs> trying to paddle that, uh, through the, wasn't even the Grand Canyon. And, um, and yeah, that was, so I, I went to a, uh, experience for troubled youth and, uh, when I was a teenager. And well, you know, you obviously, uh, uh, came out of that and it comes time for college. Matt goes off to Harvard. You initially, I know, go off to University of Vermont. Then after a few months left there and ultimately went, for a few more months to Occidental. And I think that that was a bad experience, but one that you seem to have taken some inspiration from, because I guess the they were not receptive to your <laughs> form of creativity, yeah. right? Yeah, Is that's, that fair to put it? Yeah, basically what happened was, uh, Matt, Matt was always making good decisions and I was always making blunders, <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> Matt got good grades. I was, I was depressed. I was having problems at home. I was cutting school. I didn't do very well traditionally in school. Uh, not that I ever let it make me think I wasn't smarter than Matt because I always knew <laughs> I was, despite him having gone to Harvard. But uh he went to Harvard and then, yeah. And then I went to UVM because I was in love with my high school girlfriend and followed her. And then she dumped me when I got there. 
and it was miserable and I was just really depressed and, and like, fuck this. I hate this. I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> so I moved to LA and just like packed up my stuff and took, you know, when you're 18, you're just like stupid and naive enough to think that like, that's actually a good idea. Just like throw your stuff <laughs> in the bag and go to Los Angeles, even though you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you don't know anybody. So I did. And then my mother was like, I really want you to, you know, try going to college. So I did um, some kind of independent study, continuing, you know, off campus type, uh, continuing education at Occidental College, a college of which uh, for a brief time, I think maybe I was the most famous alumni until uh, Barack Hussein Obama yes. was elected president, yes. of the United States, at which point I was permanently eclipsed. Um, but, uh, I, and I went to school and I majored in a bunch of stuff. I did work hard. I was a history, Middle Eastern studies and American, American history major, which kind of came in handy for, for Argo. And, um, mm-hmm. I was also an English major and, and Matt at the time had left Harvard and moved out to Eagle Rock where we were living. And, uh, before it was cool, there was no like, like <laughs> bars and comic book stores. It was just like Tommy's burgers and that was it. And, um, <laughs> And it was cheap and, and it was off campus and it was close to Occidental where I was taking classes and I, we were writing Google hunting. And so I, uh, we had an assignment to do 20 pages of writing. And I, I just want to interject that you were writing Goodwill hunting because Matt had at this point, what come out to, Matt, he had left. He had done like yeah. a couple of years at Harvard uh, and then left basically. He dropped yeah. out. I had gone back and workshopped with him. David Wheeler, who was friends of my father was a teacher at Harvard was also running ART. He had a, at, Matt had run through all the acting classes. So he was taking a directing class for his directing class. He wanted to do something. So uh, we performed a couple of scenes that uh, in his directing class that sort of later became Goodwill hunting. And, and, and we talked about these characters. And at that time, you got to remember, this was when like, you know, reservoir dogs and slacker and clerks uh, and, and do the right thing. You know, people, the sort of DIY thing was just starting this idea that you didn't have to, have a studio make your movie if you just like wrote a cheap script and you could kind of make it yourself. And so we thought, Oh, you know, this would be a great acting reel for us because we thought we were good at the Boston accent and we thought that would be a good <laughs> showcase for us. And that was really our only ambition for good wanting was to be a, a kind of an acting, you know, reel. And so mm-hmm. he moved out there. He said, well, you know, let's write it, let's write it. And he moved out there to write it with me. We were working on it. I took in 20 pages to my creative writing class because I figured, hey, I'm already writing. I might as well turn this in. And the professor, I read some of it and the professor stopped me and then said it wasn't a acceptable literary form uh, and kind of embarrassed <laughs> me in front of the class. And I got up, walked out. It was the last day I ever went to class there. And it was the, I said, fuck it. This is not, obviously not. Yeah. And that was that. And then we, we took yeah. us another couple of years to, to finish the script and then sell it and so on. But that was right. the genesis. Well, in, in that interim period, you started to get cast, I know, in, in uh, you know, movies that people were seeing. But it was interesting, pre, I guess, Chasing Amy, it's always sort of playing a version of the asshole, right? A bully. Uh, school ties, dazed and confused mall rats, sort of a, a jerk in those movies. And then Kevin Smith, who had done mall rats, I guess comes with chasing Amy, which I read was a 225 grand pro- project yeah. goes to Sundance. And that was the beginning of people starting to say, wait a minute, we should pay attention to this guy. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. I, I was, I, I grew a foot in a year, my junior year in high school. So I went from five, two to 
six two, and ended up just a couple inches bigger than that. So it was really big, and that was a little kind of puffy and bad and awkward and just kind of like ungainly. And uh, so every time I would go in and read for the lead, they'd be like, "You're not right for this, but what about for the dickhead? We see you more <laughs> as an asshole." And I thought, "Oh, that's so nice of you." Um, and so they, yeah, that, I was always throwing kids against their locker. That was I thought I was going to be doomed to like that kind of thing for the rest of my career and got the same kind of, you know, asshole part in that was cast by Don Phillips, who also cast me in the same role in Daisy Confused uh, for Mallrats. And um, I just, you know, openly sort of like sucked up to Kevin and pandered to him and was like, you know, I'm a nice guy. You should work with me again. I'm really a lot of fun and I'm really not a dick. I don't know why I keep getting cast as like as a jerk. And, and, uh, and he wrote, Jason Amy for me and uh, the studio want, did not want to use me or Joey or Jason. They had other established stars in mind and they were going to give them a real budget. They said, if you want to use your friends, as they put it, you have to make the movie for $250,000. He agreed to uh, my first lead. It was the first person who kind of believed in me. We shot it in 20 days on 16 millimeter. I lived on his couch, Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, but I loved it. I loved it. I got to play a real part. A movie was about something. I didn't beat anybody up. Um, and, <laughs> and then that, and then after that, I got a movie called Going All the Way that Mark Pellington directed with Jeremy Davies and, um, and Rachel Weisz. And, and those two movies went to Sundance. And they were kind of both hits at Sundance. So all of a sudden, I remember thinking like, this is must be what Mel Gibson feels like. Everyone's seen my movie. <laughs> I this is like before, you know, Sundance was such a manic kind of orgy right. of brand promotion and Instagramming and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was my my kind of break. And so, and then Chasing Amy did okay. Like it actually was released and like people who worked at record stores would sometimes recognize me and stuff. And so I had, you know, some, uh, you know, some sense of success before before Goodwill Hunting and, and some right. sort of way to argue that I should was qualified to play the part in the movie. But that was the chief impediment to to getting it. Right. Was no one wanted us to play the parts. Well, so Chasing Amy, that Sundance, obviously, is the beginning of 97. At the end of 97 is when people finally see Goodwill Hunting after all these years of you guys you know, working on it. And I know it's something that you've talked about before, but with the 25th anniversary literally coming up, I guess now next year, if you wouldn't mind humoring me by just, you know, it's one of these stories like Rocky, like Reservoir Dogs, where, you know, the, the creative people behind it insisted on remaining central to it and actually got it done. Um, and I know there was a lot of pressure to, you know, people wanted the script, but they wanted Brad and Leo or, uh, you know, then the whole thing with the the you know, inserting a scene about the guys jerking each other off just to make sure people are actually paying attention. So anyway, if, if you wouldn't mind just uh, sharing a slightly condensed version of just this origin story so that people can uh, maybe take a little inspiration from yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, we were just like, we never even, it never even occurred to us to just sell it and walk away from it. Like that was, that had nothing to do with the point of why we want to make it because we wanted to be actors. We wanted to be in it. We wanted to prove that we could be actors. So it wasn't even like um, we were t ever tempted. And in fact, so we sold it. We actually got, I thought I was set for life. We got $600,000, split it two ways. And then after taxes and agents, I had like $125,000. I was going to retire. A bunch of right. Cherokee, like beer and pizza for six months and I was broke. So it was the <laughs> early lesson in uh, saving your money. But 
we, we got that. We were at Castle Rock. Castle Rock had some really good notes, developed us away from kind of the, the sort of uh, more kind of genre version of the story and more into the personal version of it. And I think I deserve a lot of credit for that. Rob Reiner in particular was really helpful in saying like, get rid of that stuff. You know, because we, we were like, should it be, it felt had a little more Beverly Hills cop kind of, I, although I love Midnight Run. I don't think it's a great, you know, that was one of my most influential movies. We thought like, you know, the guys were kind of, people were surveilling Will and following him and he was foiling them. Anyway, they talked us into getting rid of that, but then they wanted um, somebody to direct it who worked at the company and we felt like, well, wait a minute, you know, we didn't even get the chance to send it to anybody that's a, you know, director that we've always dreamed of working with. If we get 20 passes, like, great, but let's give it a shot. They got offended. They said, you can have the movie back, but you have to get someone else to buy it in 45 days. And if not, you're fired and you get tickets to the premiere if you're lucky. <laughs> um, and but we just were like, well, we, there's no real option for us. But yeah, it's not to see someone else do it. But and so we went back around to the people who've been on it before. And of course, it's like going asking the girl, you, you know, who wanted to go to the prom with you, you know, and you said no to. If now you change your mind because the other girl said no, <laughs> well, they take you. And all the other studios all of a sudden passed on the movie. Kevin Smith brought it to Miramax because I was doing Chasing Amy at the time. I he. He, he told me he read the script on the toilet and stayed on the toilet the whole time. He was so riveted. And <laughs> I told him he stays in the toilet that long anyway. But um, <laughs> he, he gave it to Mir John Gordon at Miramax. John Gordon really liked it. Miramax bought it within the time frame. And then we went around and agreed to have us as actors because that was part of the, our, our Asian Patrick Weitzel who started out with us was a young Asian out of the mailroom when he signed us. He sold Good Wanting. It was sort of the first big thing for all three of us. I love Patrick, one of my best friends, and been with me through really thick and thin to this to this day. He's a wonderful guy and the best agent in the world. And and more than that, like a great guy. But he but and then the process at Miramax of getting a director, we had a very famous director who screen tested us, did an expensive screen test. We performed it exactly how we did in the movie ultimately and he told Miramax that he would do the movie, but he would do it with Brad and Leo. We had people that couldn't get Final Cut and wouldn't get, um, well, Sidney Lamette wanted to do it, but wouldn't get Final Cut. We met with Mel Gibson, which I was like, Braveheart had just come out. And it was like, oh, I love the script. I hate the fucking title. We were like, fuck the title. We hate the title. We'll change the title. We'll call him fucking movie Mel Gibson. And uh, he was like kind of dithering because he was going to do Fahrenheit 911. And we said, hey man, like, you know, I know you got a million movies. Like, this is our only one. He said, uh, give me 30 days. True to his word, 30 days later, he said, I, I can't promise I'm going to do it next, so I'm going to let it go. We, they had a bunch of directors they wanted that you know were, were small directors. And eventually, because of uh, my brother, uh, knew Joaquin, who had done To Die For with Gus, uh, Gus got the script. Gus really wanted to do it. And Gus had developed a movie that at the time was called The Mayor of Castro Street with Robin Williams, which later was Milk. They didn't end up making it, but he knew Robin. He gave Robin the script. And all of a sudden, once Robin Williams, who in 1995 was the absolute biggest star in Hollywood, said yes, you know, that was it. The movie was getting made. Yeah. 15 million below right. the line. Robin got five against 20 points, which turned out to be a good <laughs> deal for Robin for two and a half weeks' work. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I loved it. It was wonderful. And it was the first time I met and hung out with anybody really famous. And it was like, wow, this is intense. And the thing was, like, he had done, you know, Good Morning Vietnam, Awakenings, you know, like um, uh, uh, the Terry Gilliam movie, like all these incredible 
films and, and he'd walk down the street and everyone in Boston would be like, Nano, Nano, Mark from Mark. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> right. So then they made the movie with the, because of Robin, he, and he was fine having us be in it. And he was obviously great and helpful and wonderful. And, and just a charming, brilliant, lovely, wonderful man. And, um, and then we made it. And then, you know, um, we, they picked uh, December 4th or 7th or something for the movie to come out because they heard that the other movie that was coming out wasn't very good and wasn't going to work. It was called Titanic. And, um, <laughs> and, but we kind of actually lived in Titanic's wake. You know, they kept yeah. making $25 million every weekend and we kept making nine. You know, and yeah, I didn't yeah. realize it, but like it's the only movie I had that like didn't drop week to week. Right. Well, let me actually hone in on that period. So we're let, from December 97 through March 98, basically up to and including Oscar night. What stands out most in your memory? It's a very surreal time. I mean, I remember that, you know, now I know there's these like, you know, schmoozy Oscar parties and people throw them and they feel kind of like very different but at the time our age you know patrick the caa who patrick was with at the time basically had their what was their kind of oscar golden globe party but it was sort of a google hunting party so we thought it was a party for us like our party so we invited all our friends from high school and our families and we went there to this it was at some bar in like west hollywood on sunset and then like there we are with all these like guys in boston like the drinks are free you don't gotta pay and then there was like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. It was like hallucinatory. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Demi Moore, every single famous person, you know, I, I thought they were there for good one thing. I didn't realize people just sort of kind of matter, you know, went to these things as a matter of, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I remember talking to Phil Hoffman that night for a long time. It was, it was incredible. And I remember our friend Bubba from home was like, introduce me to Tom Cruise. And I was like, I don't fucking know Tom Cruise. He's like, your party. I was like, I don't think this is my party. Went over there and was like, hey, uh, Mr. Cruz, this is Bubba. He's my friend from home. <laughs> Bubba's like, well, you're a short fuck, aren't you? <laughs> just thought, oh my God, I'm going to get kicked out of Hollywood before I get in. Um, and it was just very weird and surreal. Probably never more so, right, than you when you sit down on Oscar night. And they start, and Billy Crystal starts singing about Matt and Ben, right? Exactly the moment that I remember the most. We went, it never hit me until I just thought, we're not going to win. This is crazy. We lost, we didn't win the WGA award. Uh, Jim Brooks won. I didn't do, you know, I was 24. You know what I mean? I was like uh, an assistant. You know what I mean? And and like, (laughs) I I just, it didn't, hadn't hit me. And I remember talking to Matt and we're like, we're not going to win. And this is all going to kind of blow over. And we never really believed. We didn't understand, we didn't have the ability to contextualize kind of what it meant. And then Billy Crystal came out, who literally the year before in Somerville, Massachusetts, we had watched the show from our sh- a shitty little apartment and done an Oscar <laughs> pool and watched Billy Crystal. And then there he was. And then he starts singing, bang, 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 bang. and then I thought, <laughs> like, I am really, this is like one of those weird dreams that you have, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then they brought out, you know, uh, Lemon and Mathis to present screenplay. And I thought, huh. And then I thought, maybe they think we're gonna win because they're doing their <laughs> like, but, and we, and, and when they read our names, it was as shocking. We took our moms, everyone's like, it's so nice you took your moms. And we're like, who the fuck else are we gonna take? Like, we didn't have a shoe, <laughs> our moms were gonna let us like, take somebody else. Like, and, and so we, we win 
And it's like, it's just like a, it's sort of like the, if you ever have like spun out in a car on the freeway or something like, you know, that feeling of being out of your body and kind of disconnected. I remember Alec Baldwin grabbed us off stage and was like, remember this, remember this. And I was just like, I'll remember you grabbing me. I don't know. Um, and, and then from, and then because of Titan, uh, that I I think is the highest rated Oscars still to this day. Yes, it, it, exactly, exactly. And you're still the youngest screenwriter winner the ever. The youngest screenwriter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then I was just going to say, interesting because that <clears throat> is sort of what was the day I feel like that we kind of became famous. We became famous right. because so many people watched us on TV win that prize, and it was such a good story. And the sort of soap opera of our lives was as you know, interesting, and this would go on to be sort of the story of my life, but the, <laughs> as, as interesting as what the thing itself was, and I remember doing Shakespeare in Love and, and, and Good Hunting hadn't come out there, so go from America, where I was, at the time, you know, you do selfies, you did autographs, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's gone by the wayside. Nobody wants to fucking autograph. And, and then I go to England, and no one knew who I was, and I fly back into Dogma in the United States and have it. So I had this really weird back and forth experience of what it was like to be a, a, a celebrity, I guess, mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. a totally unknown anonymous person. And it was really sort of fascinating. And then, and then, yeah, my life really profoundly changed. Well, and on, on that note, so yes, there's Shakespeare in Love where a year later, your, your movie wins best picture over Matt's movie, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't think um, I didn't lord it over him. <laughs> and there's also, uh, as you say, Dogma. But I think the two that probably people most remember from that time, that period, of course, are both Bay Bruckheimer movies, Armageddon and Pearl Harbor, which cost a lot of money, made a lot of money, put you right in the middle of this Hollywood machine for the first time to the extent that, you know, they're I, I know these stories you've talked about where they're changing teeth and they're just completely you are now in the middle of the machine. And I just wonder how you adapted to that when on the one hand it's, yeah, I mean, it's gotta be cool. You're now literally, this is what, a, these are movie star roles. On the other hand, I, I wonder what it's doing, you know, when you're not acting. Well, Armageddon and Pearl Harbor are two very different experiences and things. Armageddon was, I, I, screened, I auditioned for it while we were shooting Good Hunting. You know, I was up against much other guys, you know, old fashioned way, got the part, you know, by reading for it. And uh, and then Jerry was like, your teeth are terrible looking. Go to my dentist, fix your teeth. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't have the money. This is too expensive. I was like, no, 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 the studio will pay for it. And I was like, the studio will pay. Those were words <laughs> that I would come to use many times. By the way. But um, or come to rely on. But uh, yeah, they changed. And I didn't, even, I didn't even think it was that weird until I was like sitting here thinking, this guy change it. I'm putting on beneath. Like, I'm an oil driller. Why do I have to have straight teeth? Like what's the, but you know, I didn't, my, we didn't have enough for braces when I was a kid and they, they fixed my teeth. And then I was really interested in filmmaking. So for me, Armageddon was really fascinating on a, a filmmaking level. I mean, they had all the toys, the techno cranes, all the cameras, all the dollies, all the big stages at Disney. It was like the high, you know, I remember thinking that we could make a hundred, you know, uh, no, we could have made something like 50 or 60 uh, chasing Amy's for what we made Armageddon. For. And, uh, and also they were, you know, Jerry had a really smart instinct, which was to get a lot of kind of interesting people from the independent 
world like Billy Bob and Owen and Steve Buscemi and um, and guys like that to to be in the movie. So I felt like, you know, I had something kind of in common with, you know, some of those people. And I remember hanging out with Billy and he had won Best Screenplay, I think the year before for Sling Blade. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you got like half a fucking Oscar, right? That's what you got. <laughs> you got a split. Didn't they, they cut it in half and give him the half or they gave him two thirds. I mean, they gave him... Um, <laughs> And and I really liked Owen and Billy and and, and Mike, Big Mike, he's an amazing guy. And so I just had fun. And Bruce was like the leader of the gang. He loves to make people feel comfortable and have fun. I mean, he would occasionally sometimes take your lines away, take them for himself. <laughs> like, maybe uh, maybe maybe what you say is uh, you know maybe it's not even a line. <laughs> I'm like what? Oh, a line? It is. It says in the script. It's a line. But uh, but Bruce was so so actually so kind and wonderful to me and so much fun, and so that was like Kevin. That was like getting to see the real Hollywood. That was what I dreamed of, like big mm-hmm. Hollywood movies. You know how they really worked. I mean, you know, Brockheimer, Top Gun. You know, it was like couldn't have been more of the epitome of sort of what's going on in the '90s. And then the movie really worked, Aerosmith and the whole thing. And it was, yeah, it all sort of came together. Pearl Harbor. You know, Jerry and Michael sort of talked about wanting to do something more like Titanic and what they, you know, Michael sort of ended up, he has this very keen eye, this very keen sensibility and isn't in, in a way a kind of an auteur in the sense that you always know a Michael Bay movie, but like making Armageddon in the second world war in some ways was <laughs> at least in the critics views, uh, 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 discordant. However, people, like that was my first introduction to the press sort of being, you know, like they, everyone's saying, oh, what a bomb Pearl Harbor is. It's like a bomb. $500 million. Like yeah, I had yeah, a bomb yeah. like that every, I wish I would have bombs <laughs> like that every time. But, you know, it was like, it was a little bit of the beginning of a, of a kind of a, um, uh, you know, blowback, you know, kind of thing. Like, hey, you're, you two have too much, you're too young, you shouldn't be as successful, sort of resentment, that kind of thing. And it was, to be fair, kind of cheesy. I mean, that's the thing I didn't like about Pearl Harbor the, the chief problem I had, I loved the, I mean, we did this incredible training for it. This pre-ranger training was the hardest experience of my life. Two weeks at Fort Lightning, which I definitely would have quit if, if I thought it wouldn't have come out in the tabloids. It <laughs> almost killed me. And I loved the other guys and I loved the working with the veterans and, and honoring them and being at Pearl Harbor. But filmmaking wise, it was sort of like, you know, I would say like, I'll just look at Kate and you'll kind of know and, <laughs> say I love you and I was like okay I'll say I love you and then he's like let's do a push in and then they you do a push in and you say I love you and then there's a big swell and it was just sort of the more is more school and it and um in that sense I was sort of disappointed because I I, I had hoped to do something other than Armageddon again on an aircraft carrier well so you mentioned blowback and I just you know I, the thing that's amazing in kind of really studying your life and career for this is just the number of it's like a roller coaster and and more i know that is the case in a lot of hollywood careers but this is more than most and i i guess the first kind of dip if we can call it that and we know you came out of it so i think hopefully it's not something you mind looking at analytically is just you come out of that period and then there's daredevil in 2003 surviving christmas in 2004 Jersey Girl in 2004, Gigli in 2005, and in the midst of that, the whole, as the tabloid world is exploding with Us Weekly and In Touch and OK and all of that shit, 
this whole Benefer thing. And I just wonder, do you feel that in hindsight, did you get, did you guys do anything to bring about the attention and hostility that came around? Or was it purely just these guys needing product and you happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? That's a pretty good description of that time. And no, I don't mind talking about it at all. It was interesting. I sort of had to make it in the business twice because I became so cold and so not cool and so out of it that I had to sort of totally reinvent my career, you know, and it was harder because now I was starting before I was just starting at the, you know, at the, the start line. And now I had to start sort of a mile further back, you know, um, because people not only had no perception of me, but a, a negative one fostered by a really reckless and irresponsible tabloid press that would just write things that weren't true. And as you very astutely described it, we happened, you know, there's always a story of the month, a story of the six, whatever it is, you know, and we, uh, me dating Jennifer Lopez happened to be that tabloid story at the time when that business grew exponentially, when they realized there's, there's actually 10 times a bigger audience for our product than we're selling to. So there was this proliferation. Us Weekly went from a sort of celebrity friendly interview thing to a tabloid. The tabloids exploded. The internet started. You had your, you know, the Perez Hilton's, all that kind of stuff. And they needed something to write about. And we were that thing. And so I think there was a natural reaction to like, wait a minute, why am I hearing about you every day and seeing you on every newsstand? That that's a, would engender enormous amount of resentment anyway. Just that sort of like, mm-hmm. and there is like, even you asked me, but when you think about it, the answer is so obvious. Like, why in the world would I have wanted that? Why would I have mm-hmm. sought that out? People still, to this day, they'll go like, you know, I see you out there like, in the paparazzi and the pictures, it's like, yes, I left my house and took out the trash. <laughs> it's not like I'm trying to, and they said, well, you're taking a pack walk as if, if you leave your house, you're only doing so in the hopes that you should be so lucky that you could end up as the sixth item in the daily mail. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's absurd. And particularly in that case, there was this, and at first it was like Dick and Liz. It was this sort of infatuation. What an interesting couple. And then there was a ton of resentment, a ton of resentment against me, a ton of resentment against Jennifer. The irony is not lost on me huh, that Jennifer now, I mean, the people were so fucking mean about her, sexist, racist, you know, ugly, vicious shit was written about her in ways that uh, if you wrote it now, you would literally be fired yeah. for saying those things yeah. you said. Now it's like she's lionized and respected for the work she did, where she came from, what she accomplished, as well she fucking should be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I see her accomplishments as like, I, I, I would say you have a better chance from the Bronx being a Latina of ending up as like, uh, you know, Sotomayor on the Supreme Court than you do having Jennifer Lopez's career and being who she is at 50 years old today. That mm-hmm. is not that one has more value than the other. I understand right, right, right. that. But right, right, right. That, you know, just on a pure odds level, on a pure hard work. I, I don't think I met anybody who worked any harder than Jennifer Lopez. And she was very much like a, a, um, the kind of girl that I went to high school with. It was a very socioeconomically mixed, ethnically mixed place. I didn't, those kinds of differences that so seemed to shock America uh, were meaningless <laughs> to me. And, and then there was this sort of idea that you want this, you want this attention. And that coinciding with not Daredevil, which was not a good movie, even though fucking Kevin Feige, who is 
<laughs> absolutely have to say the greatest producer, most successful producer who's ever lived. He's the only right. guy in the world who, if he told me like, I know what the audience wants, this is what we do. I would believe him a hundred. <laughs> that fucker knows his audience, <laughs> like no producer. He's a genius. I mean, absolutely. He's like a master sort of, you know, circus, um, you know, what do you call those guys who are the, the, the ringmaster at the circus? Like he knows exactly yeah. how much to wink at the audience, exactly when to pull at the heartstrings, exactly when to do the effects, how many jokes, what the sensibility, what the tone is. Cause everybody, you know, people didn't know to run away from the pajamas or embrace it or make it serious. Anyway, Kevin had a low, lower down. I was like, why don't we all just fucking turn to Kevin? And ask him what to do. Because <laughs> he was like, I'm so producer on Daredevil. Um, but uh, Daredevil was not great, but, but it was it. And then to have the to to have that tablet experience coupled with Jersey Girl is not a bad movie at all. Uh, no, Christmas is not a very good movie, and Gigli turned out to be a, a, a kind of a disaster. But it's not like people say, "Oh, it's the famous bomb." It's like actually, if you watch it, and ninety nine percent of people who say, "Oh, this is so bad," I obviously haven't seen it. The problem with Gigli was, you know, first of all, Marty is a brilliant director and a brilliant guy. Did movies, you know, like Midnight Run, like Sent of a Woman. I mean, he's he, Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, this is a guy who understands filmmaking. What happened was, you know, he was trying to sort of, he, he had done Meet Joe Black, and he was sort of trying to do this story about a guy who's a lesbian. She leaves him halfway through. He ends up getting killed. It's kind of a, I used to say, we're kind of making a Polish art movie here uh, for Sony. <laughs> and then um, the Jennifer, then I started dating Jennifer, and the tabloids were sort of, so interested in it in a positive way at first that the studio decided, oh, no, 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 they got to stay together at the end. That's what America wants. America wants to see these two in love. And so we did five reshoots to sort of put a oh. horse's head on a cow's body and to try to make a romantic comedy <laughs> out of this movie that was already a weird movie to begin with. And yet I died on the PCH, you know, I was saying. Uh, and then it was, so, so it, it was never going to work. And the name was funny, and it was so. It just let's let's really- acknowledge though. I, I mean, you got there was a lot of pile on, and I'm I don't I think in hindsight it was clearly excessive. But you mentioned that Jennifer came out of it really well. It's kind of amazing how I'm sure it didn't feel quick for you in that moment. But if you look chronologically, the year after Gili, Hollywoodland 2006, your one of your best performances as George Reeves a year after that, you're directing for the first time a feature, which you, I know had always wanted to do. I had seen a quote where Patrick Weitzel, your agent who you mentioned before said that in that low point, he says, quote, we talked to each other and said, it's going to be a long road back, but we will get there. Close quote, which actually it's funny. It sounds like the way back, but anyway, you really came out of that. And it's not the only time you came out of the shitter in a sense stronger. And I just wonder how you explain that. Well, that, you know, I part of how I explain that is is that it's I'm just lucky to sort of I had I was depressed. I had depression when I was younger. That was very difficult. It was before people understood it, before there was medication. It kind of had to develop a sense of like I'm gonna get through this no matter what, no matter how shitty it feels. And I had, you know, my various issues in my childhood as well. And uh sort of had to develop it was either like gonna be up to me or it wasn't gonna happen. And, you know, every, any other agent in the world besides Patrick would have dropped me, handed me off to the junior guy, you know, what? he didn't do that. He was like, we're going to fucking make this better. We're stuck with me. That guy 
has been, you know, on the phone with me, whether I was successful or hot or ice cold. And, and Hollywoodland, as you mentioned, was really the thing. We had to fight like crazy. Patrick's the reason I got it. We knew it was a good acting part. I never thought to myself, I have no talent. I really am an asshole. I really am some jerk off, shallow frat guy, whatever. I'd never even been inside a fraternity, you know, not that I <laughs> have anything against it. It's just that that's not right. who I was. Um, right. or, nor was I a, a sort of craven, fame seeking, you know, I remember this guy, Rick McCown, this, I think was his name. He was the producer. So he was basically glorified line producer of the middle three Star Wars movies. And he did an interview at that time where he said, somebody said to him, well, you know, isn't it a little much that like Anakin Skywalker, you know, slaughters Jedi children? And he goes, I don't know, Ben Affleck, look at Ben Affleck, he'd kill children. I just thought like, Ugh. what the fuck is wrong? Like to, to have yeah. the, to be so cavalier uh, as yeah. to say that about anybody that you don't know. Yeah, dehumanizes. It is so, but it just, it, it's not even an indictment of him. I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't really care about him. Um, it's just demonstrative of the degree to which it was kind of permit. Once you become cool to make fun of somebody, then everybody makes fun of them. It's sort right. of like, I remember in high school, there'd be fights all the time. And always two people get in a fight. And then all of a sudden, five other guys come over and kick somebody on the ground, you know, like to get a chance to kick right. somebody just for right. the, the joy of doing right. it. I, I felt like I knew that, first of all, I knew I wanted to direct. I knew I could write. I could generate my own material. I didn't have to, I didn't mm -hmm. depend the first time on other people's yeah. largesse or uh, accepting mm -hmm. me to, to I depended on myself and my work. And I thought like, I can do that. I want to direct. I hate being famous. I don't mind if I'm not famous. I want to get away from all this. I can't stand it. Uh, I'd be happy to never be in another magazine again. I was actually in the very worst position you can be in in this business, which is that you can sell magazines, but not movie tickets. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, uh, you know, Patrick chased down that Hollywoodland role and um, Alan Coulter believed in me. And I got a chance to work with, with Diane and, Robin Tunney and, and, and Adrian Brody. And uh, I love the part. Obviously I could identify yeah. with the, with Reeves and then sort of having been stuck as the, you know, having done daredevil and doing Superman and being disillusioned by it and being disappointed by his experience and cut out from, from here to eternity. And uh, so anyway, I was really proud of that performance. And then I, I spent, it does, it seems, I guess like a short amount of time, but I spent every single day wholly and completely dedicated to um you know, writing a movie to direct it where I was going to like yeah. demonstrate that because people were just saying you're worthless, you're talented, you're a hack, you're a cad, you're a nobody, you're shit. And I really, I guess I function well when I feel like I have something to prove. And I was like, I'm going to make yeah. a good movie if it kills me. You know, meanwhile, I think Gone Baby Gone was one of the best feature directorial debuts of any actor turned director. I still, I still think it might be your, uh, I love it as much as any of your movies, but um, from that, I know, I know it didn't make a lot of money and yet uh, for you place number six, I didn't six. Okay. But I mean, the people who saw it appreciated it. And I guess, fortunately, one of those was somebody at, at Warner brothers yeah, because here, cool. yeah, yeah, Robinoff. And so the town comes along and, and you know, this is now three years later, 2010, uh, and it's different in the sense that here you're going to, it's a bigger budget. You're going to be actually acting in a movie you're directing, but it was really meaningful to you to be a two-time director as opposed to a one-time. Why was that? Yeah. Well, I just read a statistic that not, like something like 90% of the feature directors in the DGA have only directed one feature, which illustrated how, you know, the, 
it's actually more appealing to people, the promise of the unknown than to have directed one mediocre movie and to think like, well, I don't want a mediocre. Maybe this guy will be Paul Tom Sanders. So um, I knew that really success as a director for me meant getting a chance to make a second movie. Uh, the, the God Beyond was never going to be a big commercial movie and it ended up actually going uh, into a little bit of profit because of um, home video sales and stuff afterward. And I'm enormously proud of it. The opening of that movie is still probably my favorite thing I've, I've ever done just because, and Harry did a great score and my brother and the, 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 re, the sort of fusion of a, a sort of documentary filmmaking with a fictional narrative was the big kind of experiment of that movie as well as the moral ambiguity of it. And uh, I loved it. I, I was, I was proud of it. So I didn't really care to make any money that it wasn't about money. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've been brought right. $500 million and that people weren't saying nice things. Um, yeah. But it got good reviews and I hadn't had, you know, like a tomato score above a six in uh, quite a few <laughs> years. And, um, and so that helped. And then, yep. but it didn't make a lot of money. So I was surprised when Jeff Robinoff and Sue Kroll said that we want, they want to have a meeting. And they said, we think you're a great director, great actor. We think you can do this. We've been developing this movie. It had a director who, who wanted to, too high of a budget. Can you do it for this number? Um, and it was based on a book. And the draft was a, a kind of went a different way than what I wanted to. So I was focused on a different aspect of the story. I said, well, if I can rewrite it, I think I can rewrite it good enough. I'll rewrite it for free. You don't have to pay me if I don't want to do it. And and let me just write it and see. And then, um, yeah, I was like, I had my shot. And I was like, okay, well, it's my second one. This one's got to be. Then I realized they all have to be good. You know what I mean? It's not like you get <laughs> off the hook. Uh, right. And, right. Um, and I had a great time. And in that, in that movie was about trying to show that I could kind of not just point the camera at actors and do a performance uh, and, and writing-based you know, environmental little movie, but actually do some of the more cinematic Hollywood stuff, car chases and shootouts, yeah. and use that as a kind of a candy shell to to wrap the dramatic story in. Uh, oh, that was great, and it did well, and you were good in it, which is not always easy for a filmmaker to to be good in their movie they're directing because I guess it's easy to lose uh, objectivity and all of that. But uh, I want to note, first of all, you get great performances out of your actors and i think we should acknowledge that so aside from casey being great in in gone baby gone amy ryan gets nominated then for the town jeremy renner gets nominated for argo which where i'm going to come to now arkin gets nominated and just though i i mean so the thing with with argo so town makes a lot of money uh argo comes along i guess i don't know if they initially were thinking for you to Act in it or direct it always? They sent it to me to prefer- act and direct. And Chris yeah. Terrio wrote it based on a, a thing was at Clooney's company. And, uh, they yeah. it to me and and it was really very much kind of up my alley. The, I can't, I mean, I can't take credit for, for Alan Arkin because he's been <laughs> brilliant for a long time. But Amy Ryan and Jeremy Renner both came in and auditioned for those movies, you know. So I do like just, you know, holding the paper in their hand. And it wasn't like, you know, you cast like whatever. You're like, yes, Kate Blanchett. I'm a genius. I, I hired another actor who got nominated. It's kind of like, well, was it really you? Um, not that it was me in either of those cases either. They're both brilliant actors, but uh, I care about acting. And I knew that that was coming from that place. That was going to be my kind of strength. And so I relied on the actors and sort of tried to give them the sense that they could do anything and try to be their uh, Jerry Specka and, and lift them up oh, yeah. and empower them and, 
and I've really been happy with with all the performances. The yeah. have worked really hard, and it's great. It's more fun working with somebody also who's like psyched to have a job. You know what yeah. I mean? Instead yeah. of you're like 45 minutes later, and you're like, can I have the trailer? <laughs> or are we all just gonna stand? You know right. what I mean? Like, um, so it was fun. Yeah, and then Argo came along, and and it was also a, a, a Warner's wanted me to do it. They they again wanted me to do it for a certain number because look, if we Argo happened today, and it's only been eight years or whatever. For sure, it'll be a streaming series. For sure. It's yeah. a 10 part, yeah. you know, uh, whatever, Hulu thing or something. Um, uh, but they were like willing to make it as a feature and um, and let me cast these, you know, a, a lot of uh, different actors, but also had Goodman and Arkin. And me. so it was, uh, but it was uh, that for that movie, it was like the big question was are the, t- are the tones going to work together? Is it going to work that you're going to believe in the hot world of Hollywood? and the gravity of people being hostages and having their lives at risk in Iran. And I remember shooting the scene at the smokehouse with, uh, where me and John Goodman talk about who's going to take on what pretend to be what role in the exfiltration. And that was the day where I, I looked at John Goodman, like Goodman's performance, and he kind of encapsulated, he both took it seriously and understood the absurdity of it. And I thought like, that's it. And I, I, I really, uh, I've been carried along um, by a lot of really great people who I owe my success to in very large measure. Sure. For sure. Let me mention, I mean, I saw that movie at that very first screening at Telluride, which was the beginning of an incredible fall for you, where I just wonder, you know, again, the experience for you, forget we've talked about the creative process, but just the emotional experience of having come back from the dead, you basically had been written off by a lot of people. You have this movie that is tremendously received everywhere. Then you have this crazy thing that happens with the nominations with the Oscars. But on the same day, I remember being there and you win the Critics' Choice Award for directing and you win the then you win the Golden Globe and you win everything. And you end up back 15 years after Goodwill Hunting accepting an Oscar again. And I just wonder, again, it's it, when I come back to this roller coaster theme, it's kind of unbelievable. Just uh that the dips and the rise. It's kind of like, emblematic of this business and how it works and that people people don't understand, which is why big companies come in and own studios and then abandon them, is that it's inherently risk-based. It's bets. You're making bets and you make the most well-informed bet and you try to have to take the best of it. But ultimately, you know, you work just as hard on the ones that are Gili as the ones that are Argo. And um, mm-hmm. you, you invest as much and you believe in them as much from, and in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, sure, you could like to job for money and that's shit but like for the most part you know um it's it there's just something kind of nebulous i heard zemeckis once say movies are kind of binary you know they either sort of work or they don't there's something that kind of you just don't know that either sort of comes together or it doesn't i've had some that were just just had bad luck all the way and argo was one that just fell into place in every single way the right actor the right location the right came you know, everything that that I wanted to do, I was I was able to do it all. Just sort of worked, and I've I've had experiences where it just doesn't. It's an up and down business. It's the nature of it's a sort of blackjack experience, you know. Sometimes you win, but most you people most people fall off the wave. I mean, it's amazing you've been able to, or you've chosen to, or you've had to, or whatever it is to ride the the highs and the lows. But that brings us to you know the I guess it's been about eight years, as you say, since Argo and all that success and. There have been, again, some really uh, tremendous accomplishments with Gone Girl, which I know is sort of written to be a meta 
kind of thing and and was you were great in it for and working with Fincher I mean it's nice I'm sure just as an actor not not making your movies to be wanted by somebody like that uh of course the first thing you did with Gavin O'Connor with the accountant in 2016 I don't think anybody expected that to be as successful as it was um but you know I know you've and you've spoken about that you've had your you've been knocked around a little bit again with some of this the whole Batman ordeal where people say you're coming out of Argo and they, I think there was maybe a sense that this is what you're going to do with this goodwill, you know, right after, after Argo, you're back and you're going to go do, you know, a comic book movie or whatever. And I think Clooney, who was up there with you winning the Oscar for Argo, has said, you know, he was advising against it based on his own experience. That's what George but, claims. I don't know. How, that's what he, well, you that, don't remember. That, it. that might be a story that's convenient for the uh, circuit, but... Uh, but but uh, I mean, just to, to the last of those things, I just want to note before I ask you to respond. So, you know, and then inevitably nobody has every movie that they direct is tremendously received. You had your hiccup with Live By Night. And then obviously, as you've dealt with to one degree or another, the, the, the personal stuff. So pre just this is all setting up pre way back. How do you look back at, at the the last eight years? Sometimes, sometimes some movies work, some don't. You do movies for different reasons. Um, Gone Girl, the experience of that was becoming friends with David, who I think is one of the greatest people I've ever met. He's got the taste of an artist, the mind of an engineer, and he's brilliantly funny. I think Mank is a magnificent masterpiece. I love David as a human being, and the gift of that movie was like his friendship. Um, and, and, you know, uh, yeah, the, and the account was great. That panned out great. And and, you know, I did Batman because I wanted to do it for my kids. You know, I wanted to do it that my son would take. Uh, my son, you know, the kids didn't see Don't Argo and, time, you know, the grown-up movies. And I thought that would be fun. And I, I loved, Zach wanted to do sort of a version of the Frank Miller um, Dark Knight graphic novel series, which uh, is a really good version of that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons why things go the way they do in the movie business. And just because your face is on the poster <laughs> doesn't mean that, you know what I mean? You're, you're dictating all those things. And even if you are, that they would go well. Um, I like Live By Night as much as any of my movies. I love Live By Night. So it, it was my fault to, to, I wanted it to come out when it did. And I, and it was a mistake, I think, to, to, to release it in the way and the time that we did. And Warner's told me that and I did I didn't agree and um it was a mistake. I, I like the movie. I, I think it was also like, okay, you know, it was back to that same thing. You got a lot out of Argo. Now we're not gonna, you know, um, because that movie, you know, I think is good, you know. Um they're great performances and it and, and really interesting stuff and it moves me as much as as any of my movies. Um but I also have a lot of humility. I mean, there's I see flaws in all my movies. It's just the nature of this thing. It, it's hard for people to understand. As if like, you know, why didn't you make a good movie? You know, why didn't you make a successful movie? Well, you know, I tried. Um, and and uh, I thought it was fun to do Batman. I knew there was going to be a certain amount of you know. I didn't realize what a pop culture thing the whole comic world. And now comics have kind of taken over the movie business. And I wouldn't be surprised if after COVID there are only twenty movies released a year theatrically and. 15 of them are in, you know, pajamas, but also that's probably not what I want to do now at the stage of my career. You know, I did want to do that after Argo and I want to do Gargoyle. I don't want to do the account. And I want to, and, and, and I want to do the by night and, and I wanted to do Batman. That would be so much fun. And then, and I wore the suit to my son's birthday party, which was worth 
every moment of suffering of Justice League. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but but now really it's like I found that where I am. And, and also I, I, I realized I was an alcoholic. And I stopped drinking. I was drink- and I started drinking too much uh, around the time of Justice League. And um, it's a hard thing to confront and face and deal with. And I've been sober for a, 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 a while now. And I feel really good and as healthy and good as I've ever felt. And the process of recovering from alcoholism has been really instructive. And I think it's great for people who aren't alcoholics. You know, like, be honest. Mm-hmm. Have integrity. Take accountability. Help other people. Um, it's a good set of things that they that they teach you uh it took me a little while to get it i had a few slips like most people but uh i feel really good and so that those two things have really don't have much to do with one another and also it's so like i mean if you knew how many actors and directors and writers were alcoholics and and then you know are compulsive (laughs) in some way i mean the business is it's like not it's the most ordinary thing in the world in hollywood um and i've worked with actors who showed up drunk and you know i mean it's uh, and that was not me. My, I, I drank, you know, like alone in my living room and, and just passed out drinking scotch, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I got sober and that was part of it. And yeah, of course, people will say like, oh, he's, you know, take shots at you for that. But that has nothing to do with their, your work or the quality of your work. And um, and interestingly, you know, you know, it's not like they go, I don't know. I, I, I It is what it is. It's part of the deal. I, it's too bad that like that attention in your personal life comes with this other stuff. But I understand it. It's part of how it goes. And well, I mean, I, I think the only reason that it's that it's applicable here, and I'm I don't I'm not trying to in any way push that further. But I just think you have now given in the coming literally. I think coming right out of that difficult period. Literally, I think the next day going to the set. From what I yeah. understand from, from, one, from one of the times that I that I uh, went into recovery, which was, which was several, took me several yeah. shots at it to get it. It's not an easy thing to do. It's it's difficult. But one of the things that happened to me was that I was forced to really honestly look at myself, my my failings, my shortcomings, my character flaws, to really find accountability, to not hide or run from feelings. And I developed a much greater access to, and this sounds very accurate, so forgive me, but like just the full range of my emotions. And I had so many more life experiences and so much more to bring to a performance. Now I, I feel like a much, much better actor than I've ever been. I love it. I just had an amazing time on, on the last role. I loved doing it. Um, and I, and I want to just do roles that, you know, like uh, hopefully this, this tender bar thing, um, you know, with George is about, people living their lives, you know, that very, that are relatable and real and, and about the, what they feel and what they think and how they handle the challenges in their lives. And that's, and it's it, with the way backwards was like, yes, getting sober again, uh, last movie, not being successful, but I, it was sort of like Hollywood. And like, I was like, this is a great acting role and I know how to do it. And I, I really understand alcoholism doesn't require any further research on my part, I was the <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis of that movie, um, and uh, I, 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 I really felt like you know, it's 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 a sad movie and a difficult movie, and it's and really it's about losing a child more than it's about alcohol, yeah. even um, because that's really what's what's going on with that character, um, and that I didn't understand, thank God, and that did require a lot of yeah. imagination and work and research, but you know the scenes that were emotional and difficult every day, I came home feeling elated and thrilled. And I 
felt like I really understood and loved doing it. Well, and I think it's, again, I have really gone back in prep for this. I'd seen your stuff, obviously, initially when it was first out, but I've gone back and watched a lot. I've read a lot. And I honestly think this is one of the best acting jobs you've you've ever done. I know it must have been kind of painful at, at times to put yourself through it. And there are certain moments that demanded, you know, and, and, and Gavin and I think you have talked about just certain scenes that probably come very close to nerves and whatever. But at the end of the day, as you when you look back on, you know, you've played alcoholics before you've done the town, Triple Frontier, other stuff. But when you look back on this role years from now and the experience of playing it and just, you know, what do you think you're going to most remember? Was it cathartic? Was it helpful? Was it uh, something that you can now feel very proud of? I feel, I mean, listen, I, I, I feel enorm, both humble and enormously proud of it. It was something where I wanted to to leave leave something behind that was really representative of what I felt was um, the best I could do. I felt that I was capable of doing something more than I had done and going deeper and really, um, you know, finding deep and authentic uh, emotional behavior, recreating that, creating empathy in the audience, and and doing something that was really meaningful to me. That the way back is the movie, the one movie that I would show people. If the, um, you know, if they want to know about me as an actor, I'm you know I put on weight. I was 240 pounds. I was like, it wasn't vain. It was not. It was like a real guy in a real life, really suffering and really trying to overcome it in an honest way. And every moment had to be played with authenticity and integrity. And I loved it. I'm enormously proud of it. I don't, I'm, I, I've been bad in movies and um, this is one that I felt like I was really good in and I feel really good about it. Um, and it wasn't, first of all, he, he, the alcohol, alcoholism, a different kind of alcoholic than me. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that addiction and alcoholism and so on and compulsive eating or sex. Or, I mean, there's so much, you know, of that kind of behavior in the world. And it takes a lot of different forms. His was different from mine, but nonetheless, like, like I say, you would think it would be painful, but it was kind of joyful to feel myself like accomplishing the things I set out to, to getting to the places emotionally I wanted to get to, to it. And in, like, it always is when it's at its best. I was just talking about this the other day, like, it feels its easiest. It just flows. You know, Matt was telling me that he was talking to Bono when he was in Ireland. Bono was saying, you know, we don't take musicians or ourselves very seriously, but we take it seriously when a song comes into the room. And I felt like with that movie, like that kind of came into the room, you know, this guy, his life, what it meant. And I just I felt like I was kind of just um, dancing with it. And it was a lovely, wonderful, rewarding feeling. And I felt like a crowning kind of achievement of my life as an actor. I don't feel like I need to um, find some other movie to say like, look, I can do this. Um, I mean, I've done, I think 50 movies now, um, wow. in various wow. stuff, but that's definitely in my view, my, the favorite of my performances, not only selfishly as an actor, but also because it was about something meaningful and important and, I was bummed when the pandemic hit the week it came out, which yeah. out of theater, yeah. but it actually turned out to be a blessing <laughs> for the movie because they rushed it into streaming and we had a captive audience. So I had more, more emails from people about that movie than uh, anything else I've done. And I love it. It's wonderful. I, I wouldn't, <laughs> my kids don't want to see it, but, uh, 
Yeah. And I would maybe give it some time before they did because I think it, it would certainly be more painful for them. Uh, it was it, strangely um, wonderful for me. And I should mention that a part of that was getting to know the young men who played the basketball players. They were great guys, great actors. And they remind, they all spent all day, you know, asking questions about acting and talking about casting directors and auditions and trying to get this part and that part. And they reminded me of school times and being a player mm-hmm. on a team in a small part in that movie and of, of just loving doing it and appreciating the opportunity to do it. And I was so grateful that I got to come to work and play that part every day and, and do this for a living. It, it really changed my life, you know, uh, and since that time, that movie, I've just felt, I love my work. I'm going to choose things that are interesting to me. I'm not interested in doing stuff that's trying to be commercial. I want to be a good father, most of all. And that's kind of all I need. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy for you and uh, glad you're back. Glad you're doing well. And um, can't thank you enough for doing this. No really appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.